How's it going, everybody? It is 3 o'clock Thursday afternoon, October the 17th, 2019, and it is time for a uh, long-awaited trip down the homeward path. This is the show where we're talking things we can learn from the evergreen, sh- or evergreen things we can learn from the struggle, playing magic on a budget, whether it's time, financial, whatever. You know, my name is Adam. I'm a husband, a father of three. I work a full-time job, and somehow, some way, we try to find a way to make magic at at least somewhat of a competitive level happen. So, if anything I can share from the struggles that I'm going through can help somebody else avoid those same struggles, I feel like I've succeeded in what I'm set out setting out to do. So, uh, I missed the show last week. Computer was on the fritz. Uh, thank you for those of you who came back. <laughs> I didn't get a chance to tell everybody who only listens to this show and doesn't watch the video series how everything went last weekend, or the weekend before, rather. Uh, For those of you who don't know who are just now tuning in, my daughter had surgery on the back of her her mouth uh, October the 4th and was in the hospital for three days. It was Friday, Saturday, Sunday, came home Monday afternoon. And we've been on liquid diet since then, uh, healing very well, and thanks to some extremely or some some extreme generosity from very 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 good people, uh, we've been able to make sure she didn't lose a whole lot of weight in between, and we got her. Uh, I'm actually recording this on my way home from taking her to her surgery follow-up appointment today where they told us we can put her back on solid foods. So if you hear her in the background, I'm not sorry at all. (laughs) Anyone who knows me personally knows all three of them. All three of my children are my pride and joy, so it's okay. If she wakes up and starts talking, she's going to wake up and start talking. I don't care. That out of the way, let's shift gears. Shift gears because I'm in the car driving. It's a dad joke. Anyway, uh, let's shift gears to our topics for the week. First of all, we have a bit of a troubling trend in standard and what may end up coming of it before we shift gears again to talk about a honestly it's one of the more interesting and more intriguing paths to take as a budget oriented magic player who you know especially in older formats like you want to you want to get into a deck be able to master it and be able to compete for a long time there's not really a better way to do it than to get into get into a linear deck so we're going to talk about what makes those tick why they're good why they're bad and the two primary different styles of them and while we're talking about style, y'all need to head over to our sponsor at inkgaming.com. Use the promo code CCMTG10 at checkout. Get 10% off your order. And you can style all over your opponent's faces with sweet play mats, deck boxes, uh, gaming cases, like all the things. And if you want to hear magic content with some style and flair, head over to constructedcriticism.com. Check out all the content on the network. It's all fantastic. Just 
do it. Go over there, check it all out. It's great. Flagship show, constructive criticism. Spencer and Matt are really starting to round into form again. Like it's, it's it feels from a from a dynamic standpoint like Matt never left. And then common knowledge is the best popper podcast on the web. I, it's not hyperbole; it's just fact. And then you know, Hive Mind, Ten Street Hooligans, Mythic uh, Arena, Mythic Cast with uh, Mike Greenbaum. Just check all the stuff out. It's all great. Just do it. <laughs> and with that out of the way, let's dive into part one. We have uh, the the Mythic Championship deck lists were posted. And oh my goodness. Uh, Spencer's jumping for joy a little bit because the color green is just very well represented, to say the least. We have large volumes of Golos decks and Oko-oriented mid-range decks. Like Gilded Goose, Oko, and then either Teferi or a bunch of removal spells. Like, to the point that I think there's maybe two or three non-green decks in the entire field at the Mythic Championship coming up. That is terrifying. That so many people out of this, this relatively small field have kind of homogenized onto two or three concepts and have, are, are determined to, you know, prove themselves right that way. Especially daunting is the task ahead of the people who decided to go against the grain. I personally will be rooting for one Ken Yukihiro because, as Jim Davis put it on stream last week, or not last week, yesterday, it was yesterday. As Jim Davis put it on stream yesterday, Ken Yukihiro is basically bringing a modern deck to the standard tournament. Uh, that being, uh, as Jim called it, it's Dino Blade. It's actually, you know, Marty Knights. But. You don't just play Rotting Regisaur and Embercleave in the same deck by accident while you're building your Mardu Knights deck. So having access to those two cards is critical to any amount of success that I think, I think at least, that Ken is going to have. I think that's going to be one of the decks of the tournament because, I mean, it's between that one the, the Gruel Ember Cleave decks, or maybe like a green white adventure, green white or green black adventure shell, as any sort of a semi legitimate challenger to the throne of Eldring, not Eldring, of the Mythic Championship. But you're going to have to plow through a field of Okos and Golos and Teferi and Fires of Invention. Just all these obnoxious value engines that just run away and hide with games the longer things go. So having access to an effect like Embercleave is a really good equalizer because if your opponent makes just the slightest mistake, they're just dead. Like, that happened several times when I was watching Jim play Yukihiro's deck on stream. Opponent would just assume that either he didn't have it or that, I guess, most of it was just assuming that he didn't have it. And then the Embercleave comes down and the opponent dies. Like, 
many, many times during that stream. That's what happened. It's a deck that takes advantage of the fact that most of the, uh, the decks in the format have no little to no real removal. So we're just gonna, you know, we're just gonna do some Embercleave things. And I like it. I'm here for that. That's awesome. And with that out of the way, you know, obviously with the ban list coming up a week from, or not even a week, it's like four days away. In four days, we have another ban list update. So there's a very strong possibility based on the field of the Mythic Championship that we may see Field of the Dead banned, which is going to be a little ironic because there's going to be a Field of the Dead left over at the Mythic Championship when the, when the dust settles and the champions eventually crown. But I digress. There's a, you know... All of the speculation, at least, is pointing to Field of the Dead getting the axe. And there's there's a lot of commentary on what other cards should be banned. I'm not of much of an opinion one way or the other regarding that, although I would very much like to not have to play around to Fairy Time Raveler uh, anymore. That's just a personal preference thing, because I like playing the card Dreadhold Arcanist, and I like playing the card Finale Promise, and I like playing the card uh, God Eternal Kefnet. Are all of these good in the standard metagame? Oh my heavens, no. Do I like playing them anyway? Oh my heavens, yes. So, I just want to be able to play those sweet cards again, and not have to worry about this 3-drop completely invalidating everything I want to do. Finale of Promise is a whole other ball of wax, though. It's it's not unplayable because it's a fairy. It's unplayable because it doesn't have good things to pull out of the graveyard anymore. Anyway, moving on. Let's stop talking about Standard for a little while because I know a lot of my listeners are tired of hearing about Standard. So instead, let's talk about a style of deck that's, that tends to make its presence known more in Modern and Legacy and Pauper and, to a lesser extent, formats like Commander... The linear deck. The, the, the basic, the most basic definition of a linear deck is to go in heavily on a mechanical theme or a tribal synergy. You, you want to play an interaction that makes the sum of the parts much more powerful than what you could be doing if you just did things the fair way and just played the best versions of cards at those mana costs. And I know that's a really, really, that's a big mouthful. Basically, the idea behind linear decks and the reason they work is if your cards coming together give you something that is better than what the best thing is at that same mana cost, you're doing a good job. That's the most basic definition I can give you for a linear deck. And there's been a lot of different variations on them over the years. One of the most notable things about linear decks, you go back throughout the history of Magic, decks that have gotten banned in standard for being too powerful tend to be linear decks. Talarian Academy. Uh, Broken Jar. Uh, Aetherworks Marvel. Energy, fairies, probably should have seen a ban in standard. Uh, what else? Oh, oh yeah, affinity. 
you know, you look back at a laundry list of the best decks in the history of Magic, both in standard iterations and then decks that, even from standard iterations with bands still intact on them, they were still competitive. You're mostly looking at linear decks. Dredge. Hogak. Cephalid Breakfast. It's like, it exists in Legacy at this point. Storm. In fact, there's a laundry list of these decks. Boggles. Is it broken? No. Is it powerful? Yes. And linear decks tend to be good for one of two reasons. One, what they're doing is just actually more powerful than anything else anybody can do. This has come up several times over the history of Magic. Affinity. Really good example. When one aggro deck is a bunch of small red animals and a few artifact creatures and you're trying to leverage cards like Shrapnel Blast and Electrostatic Bolt and Arc Slogger and a bunch of you know medium red creatures and you're trying to play bigger. And the other aggro deck is playing one mana draw twos and a bunch of free two twos and four fours and drawing extra cards while moving plus one plus one counters around and making it to where blocking is just it just doesn't matter which one of these decks is more powerful it's it's the one that does all the other things instead of just trying to play the fair game that was the story with affinity when one of the decks in the format is turn three kill and requires you to play a bunch of a bunch of very specific instants and sorceries in your deck and you need to find them very very quickly and the other deck is playing the same instants and sorceries but an easier to leverage and way more broken engine doesn't take long to figure out which one of those decks is busted naffy so you know that's that's the story of Telerian Academy uh, what sounds more powerful? Playing a bunch of uh, a bunch of two and three mana creatures and or vehicles, maybe a Gideon ally of Zendikar, or playing a giant Eldrazi on your fourth turn. Basically, like a third of the time, getting a giant Eldrazi on the table that also blows up two of your opponent's lands. and is indestructible, and mills 20 cards every time it attacks. I think we're going to go with the, the Aetherworks Marvel deck. So, you know, a good percentage of the time, being the linear deck is just actually more powerful than anything anybody else can do. Uh, what's more powerful? Playing Tapped Hallowed Fountain on turn one into... Uh, Celestial Colonnade Serum Visions on turn or Tap Talifound on turn one, Tap Celestial Colonnade Serum Visions on turn two, or playing a creature, Stitcher Supplier on turn one, Glow Spore Shaman on turn two. Oh, play Hogak out of my graveyard. I, I think it's pretty obvious which one's more powerful, don't you? 
uh, the one that gets the free 8-8s that bring back your Vengevine. Uh, I don't think that's particularly close. Like, sometimes what you're doing is just plain more powerful than what the other people are doing. And that's okay. Well, it's, it's not, like, great, but... You know, it's, it's definitely something to keep in mind. Whatever, you know, if you stumble upon an interaction or uh, a mechanic or something that when you play with it against the field, it just feels better than what they're doing, trust that. Push on that as hard as you can. You might be onto something busted because that's the essence of a linear deck. The other version of linear decks and the ones that tend to do well in older formats are ones that exploit a hole in what the format is playing. Either in conventional card choices or in availability of interactions. A really good example is going on in Standard right now in Golos Field of the Dead decks. We just don't have playable land destruction. We have four drop land destruction. We don't have cards like Field of Ruin and Standard anymore. We don't have uh, Alpine Moon, uh, Blood Sun. We don't have any of those things. So, <sighs> excuse me. <sighs> what a day. You know, we don't have the access to those things. So having a land that just spits out tons and tons and tons of tutus for free, all because you decided to buy all the way in on ramping mana, kind of a big deal. Uh, looking in modern, if nobody's playing Liliana of the Veil and Liliana's Triumph and Angrath's Rampage and cards like that, you can just destroy an event with boggles. If nobody's playing Artifact Hate in their sideboards, let's go get one real quick with Hardened Scales Affinity. If nobody's playing uh, Graveyard Hate, let's go dredge some fools. You know, having access to these linear decks is definitely a way, I like to refer to it in football terms, and that is you're performing a coverage check. It's like when those the really creative, the really good offensive coaches use motion before the play starts to see what goes with the guy across the field. That's a coverage check. You're trying to figure out what everybody has. So, I mean, that's basically what you're doing when you have access to a linear deck in your collection. You show up to some local events. Let's just play the fastest, most powerful thing I can, and let's find out how many people respect it. Sometimes the answer is no one. Sometimes the answer is everyone. Sometimes the answer is somewhere in between those two. And then the last thing I want to talk about are the two distinctively different ways of building linear decks. The first one 
and the most popular version of building a linear deck is not the what tends to be the most powerful version. The first way of building linear decks that I've seen over the years is to try to take this mechanic, lean into it a little bit, but still be able to play a relatively fair game of magic. A la, is it Phoenix? A la, um, Delirium. So, I mean, both of those decks had some powerful starts they were capable of. Cards like, you know, curving Grimflare into, you know, grapple with the past and just really, really good draws, basically. You know, a, a good mill from a grapple with the past would just give you delirium. The number of times we would grapple and hit, you know, Scrap Heap Scrounger, the grapple with the past itself in a land, that gives you four card types, attack you for four, mill some more. Like, now you're, now you're cooking with gas, the Delirium deck gets rolling. But you weren't all the way in on that. Ishkana Graf Widow is just a powerful magic card and doesn't require a lot of deck building concessions. Terramander is a powerful magic card and fits nicely into the style of deck you would want to play a small blue flyer in that gets really big later. You know, Mono Blue Tempo, is it Drake's? Uh, is it... What else was it played in? Well, the, the Blue Black Terramander deck that I champion in Standard. You're leaning lightly into the idea of Spells Matter. and leveraging it in a fair way where you get just a little bit more value because you're playing synergies. Uh, you know, is it Phoenix is the same way. You're leaning a little bit on your graveyard, but you're also leaning a little bit into the spells matter. The standard is it Phoenix lists are leaning a little bit into your graveyard and spells matter and a little bit into the draw, you know, drawing a second card each turn matters. What happens when you go really far down either one of those roads? You get a deck that is potentially more powerful on either end, uh, but a little bit more fragile. On, on the one hand, if you lean really, really heavily into the graveyard mechanics and spells matter aspect to really maximize your, your Arclight Phoenixes, you're playing something like the Frank Karsten article on Channel Fireball where you're playing adventure cards and you want to see a phoenix as early as possible because you can get a draw that's like green source, rose thorn acolyte, rose thorn acolyte, haggle, discard phoenix, get it back. Attack for three on turn one. Which sounds really powerful until you realize like, yes, you have the creatures in, in exile to cast again later, so you're not just like actually out of cards. You know, you, you've, your hand is really low, but you functionally still got three creatures in your hand. But it's still rough. Like, it's still difficult. Uh, decks like Death Shadow fall into this category to me. You're, you're using your life total as a resource specifically to fuel Death Shadow, so that's, the, that's one linear you're playing on. But you're also playing pretty heavily into the graveyard as a resource from a linear perspective because you're playing Delve cards. You're playing uh, Anglers and Tassigers. You know, Mardu Pyromancer leans a lot more heavily on the graveyard. 
plays more flashback spells, even though it leverages them in a more fair manner, you know, it's still a, it's still another example of an engine deck. It's a, a deck that uses this linear as a way to leverage a little bit of unfair into their fair deck. And that's okay. That doesn't make the deck bad. It's just important to recognize that while these tend to be good decks, they tend to be fun decks, they tend to be effective decks, they are not necessarily the most powerful of decks. They're more well-rounded. They're, they're less bad against more things. But with the caveat of also being less fundamentally disgusting and broken. And that's where we look at the other end of the linear spectrum, where instead of taking a, a mechanical identity, a thing that feels a little bit powerful, a thing that feels pretty strong, and leaning into it a little bit in order to leverage it to push a fair deck over the top, we want to lean so far into it that if it doesn't work, we lose. But if it does work, we just destroy people. That's how you end up with decks like Dredge, with Boggles, with Infect, with Affinity, Hardened Scales Affinity, uh, Wurza. All these decks are completely in on what they do. Like, they don't, they do one thing, they do that one thing really, really well. To the point that it feels completely and utterly unfair. You know, you look at a you look at the list of infect I did on riding in cars on, on Monday. Twelve creatures, thirteen if you count Dryad Arbor, sixteen if you count uh, Ink Moth Nexus. Everything else in the deck is a pump spell. You're not you're not messing around with a bunch of interaction. You're not messing around with trying to play infect fair. Because you don't kill people on turn two that way. Modern's a turn three format, so let's kill them on turn two. That's the mantra of Infect. That's why you play Infect. That's your advantage. You know, you show up to a tournament, you're like, okay, nobody's playing Graveyard Hate. I guess I'll play Mardu Pyromancer. No. You play Mardu Pyromancer when you're expecting to see a field full of Jun decks, and you want to be able to go just a little bit over the top of them by getting more value out of your cards. Or, you know, the Mardu Death Shadow deck, or the, the, the variations on that theme. What do you play when nobody's got graveyard hate and you really want to punish the field? Play Dredge. You just kill them on turn three. What do you do if nobody's playing Edicts and Board Wipes? They're playing all spot removal. Guess I'll just play a bunch of Hexproof creatures and make them so big that they race anything. That seems good, right? And then we'll play Leyline of Sanctity in the board so that we have outs to exactly Edict Effects and Thoughtseize, which are the, the only two things that matter against this deck. If your opponent overloads on those things and you don't get Leyline, you lose. If your opponent overloads on Graveyard Hate and you don't draw your answers after sideboard, you lose when you're playing Dredge. If you show up to play, you know, you, you show up and you're expecting not a lot of Artifact Hate, and your opponent brings in lots and lots and lots of artifact hate against your hardened skills affinity deck, you lose. The basic premise behind these kinds of decks 
You're just asking your opponent one question the entirety of the game. Do you have it? Because if you don't have it, you're going to die. <laughs> That's how your games go. Sometimes it feels like you're in it, like you can play them fair, you can try to make them play a fair game. Like I did against Infect the last time I played. But eventually you end up with a handful of uh, Echoing Truths and they're killing you with Inkmont Nexus, attacking with Double Noble Hierarch up and you can't do anything about it. Because Echoing Truth doesn't bounce lands. And you're really wishing you could find a Vapor Snag or a Bolt, but you've already used those on all the other things they played. And that one Ink Moth that you didn't kill yet is still chipping away at you, and you're still dying. Like, they can play a fair game. They don't like to, but you can. It's very rarely a pretty sight, you know. It's it's kind of ugly when the Storm deck has to, has to empty the Warrens instead of just Grape Shot you out of the game. Because if you have exactly engineered explosives or uh, ratchet bomb or whatever, you win on the spot because the Swarm players exhausted their resources and they didn't kill you. But that's the advantage you gain from playing the linear deck in the first place. You, you choose the thing, you basically you choose the thing that beats you. Because if they don't have exactly the thing that beats you, they lose. That's the, the benefit to linear decks. That's also the caveat to linear decks. If your opponents want to beat you, they can. But you put the ball in their court, right? You make them make the decision. Do I want to be good against this deck or do I want to be good against these other three? They have to weigh the odds on what they think they're going to come up against. And then especially me being on a budget, like, that is abs that's worth its weight in gold. When I know exactly what beats me, and I can play accordingly. I can, I can strategize accordingly. It's why I'm looking at picking up Infect instead of something like Eldrazi Tron or, uh, you know, Death Shadow or blue-white control or anything like that. I want to be the one asking the question, do you have it? It's a, it's a much better place to be when you don't have all the answers. You know, if you can't afford the answers, you should be the one asking the questions. So, last but not least... Let's take a look at how you go about like discovering a linear. Because there's been a couple of them that are there, there's a couple of them that are kind of up and coming and right now standard. But you can even look back to a deck like Mono Red Prowess. For the longest time, the only deck that played that many burn spells was actual burn. Then somebody looked at burn and said, hey, we can make this even faster. If we just play more prowess creatures, we give you a little bit more of a grind with a card like Bedlam Reveler, but you're, you're pushing a different path. Your opponent still takes a ton of damage. They still win if they can make an, a concerted effort to gain life and get out of range. But in exchange, 
your number of turn three kills goes up uh, by a staggering amount if your opponent doesn't have those things. So in essence, it was, it was the idea of leaning even more heavily into what made burn burn. The idea of just dealing massive chunks of damage early in the game and using every card as a kind of a packet of damage, if you will. All of those things, all the, the normal fundamental rules still apply, but in exchange you are a little bit better against Leyline of Sanctity. Like you don't just lose to that card outright. You're a little bit better against uh, oh, what is it? What is the you're a little bit better against Core Firewalker because you can just attack for a ton. You know, play three or four spells, sure your opponent gains some life, but they take a bunch of damage. And or, you know, they, they take some damage, but more importantly, you're pumping your team, so you can still mash through Core Firewalker thanks to Crash Through and still just kill them. Your opponent still dies. Like, you lean just that little bit more heavily into the linear. Oh, I think I'm going to have to get off on this one. I'm going to have to get off an exit early. Anyway. So, at the end of the day, like, that's the advantage you gain by buying in to linear. Whether it's taking an engine, I've done it myself. We took the Delirium engine and splashed it into a red-green aggro deck. Back in, uh, back in Kaladesh, like right after Kaladesh Standard came out. That was one of my finest pieces of work. Nick was like, I'm tired of my red-green energy aggro deck losing to blue-black control. That wasn't even a, a popular deck at the time, but he really wanted to beat blue-black control. I said, okay. Make him kill your creatures a whole bunch of times. And we ended up pushing the graveyard package really hard in that deck. Grimflayer made its way in. Uh, Vessel, and Vessel of Nascency and Grapple with the Past made their way in. The deck became less aggressive, but it became much better at grinding through removal that blue-black control was going to use. We were playing cards like... Uh, We were playing cards like Scrap Heap Scrounger and Prized Amalgam. Uh, alongside a card like Tormenting Voice. We played Tormenting Voice in Standard, not with Arclight Phoenix, but with Prized Amalgam and Scrap Heap Scrounger. We wanted those in the graveyard. You know, curving turn two. You know, turn one vessel, turn two Grim Flayer, turn three, sacrifice vessel, cast grapple, achieve delirium, attack for four, get some more cards in the graveyard, turn four, revive scrap heap scrounger, uh, grapple again, or, you know, Voltaic Brawler. We were still playing Voltaic Brawler because it was. You know, we were still at the point where we genuinely believed a two-drop 4-3 trample was really good. Because once upon a time it was. Even if it only hits them twice, like that was our belief. It was like, you know, it was like a two-drop four, four damage burn spell if it connected once. And if it didn't, it got a removal spell out of their hand. Made our Grim Flare work better. 
Grimflare also did a good job of pulling removal away from these other creatures. Like, we leaned heavily into it. And then, you know, if the opponents want to play a game where they're playing cards like Blessed Alliance, they're playing cards like... Uh, what was it? Fumigate. Uh, I'm struggling to remember the board wipes that were playable at the time. You know, whatever the case may be, we're just going to grind them to dust by repeatedly punishing them for killing our creatures. And then we got to sideboard into cards like Ishkana and uh, numerous other cards that were really, really good. I've also been on the other side of it, where we took the Aetherworks Marvel shell and leaned heavily into it on the other side. Normally, the Aetherworks Marvel shell was played in teamer colors because you wanted to play the best energy sinks, you wanted to play the best energy enablers. When it turned out the core for the deck, you wanted to play Attune, Woodweaver's Puzzle Knot, and Rogue Refiner, along with Ulamog, Marvel. Well, I said, the heck with playing teamer. I don't need to play Harness Lightning. Give me another big dumb thing to do with all this energy. So we ended up going Sultai for Demon of Dark Schemes. Which would not only let you uh, get another hit off the Marvel for something that was potentially very powerful, but then it would also give you another powerful sink for your energy. It was like having extra copies of Marvel. And it was particularly nice alongside the Vessel of Nascencies that we were playing. So just all the way around, the deck was really, really, really strong. I was very fond of it. So, you know, end of the day, it was, you know, we, we took that linear that was already established as one of the most powerful things you could do in standard at the time and pushed even harder on it in the unfair direction. And Nick was winning tournaments that way. So, I mean, at the end of the day, that's that's what we want, right? It's why Mono Red Cavalcade sees a fair amount of play right now. You are all the way in on attacking with a bunch of small creatures, and the payoffs are huge. Yes, you get beaten by exactly board wipes. Not that many people are playing those. You, know, you have, like, weird mutant forms of evasion... Uh, Steam Elephant on Twitter did another version of it where they leaned even more heavily into the idea of evasive, cheap bodies with small power to power out, turbo out big chunks of damage by playing it in Is It with flying creatures so that you don't even have to pay mana for the evasion. And that's the kind of risks you have to take if you want to try to discover something that's broken. Right? Is you've got to push really hard on these mechanical identities. You can't, like, pretend. You can't, like, think about pushing on them. you got to push them so hard it feels like you're trying too hard. Sometimes you are. Sometimes you've just discovered the thing that's going to break the format. Especially in the day and age we're in now of Arena, where formats sit, tend to get solved very, very quickly... There's some equity to be had 
in pushing things in, in new directions, in specializing your deck and being very, very good at one thing and just kind of tiptoeing around and choosing which thing you want to have beat you. It's definitely true in modern. Like, there's a lot of equity to be had in having a, a modern collection that has, like, three different linear decks that lose to different things. You know, if you've got a, a modern deck collection that's got Boggles, Infect, Storm, you're in pretty good shape. You know, you can, you can choose based on the environment you're going into, based on the metagame you expect to see, instead of saying, hey, I need to change these sideboard slots out, I gotta decide what I wanna do with my main deck, I really wanna make sure I got the right 75 in place here, I really don't, you know, wringing your hands, gritting your teeth. You just go, okay, uh, nobody's playing Artifact Hate, I guess I'll play Affinity this week. That's it, that's your whole decision tree. And especially as people on a, on a budget, on a financial budget, these decks tend to be good for a very long time. Like, Affinity has been good forever. It's been banned into oblivion. Like, original versions of Affinity had the Artifact Lands. We don't even have those anymore. Original versions of Affinity had Cranial Plating. Ain't, you know... Now Affinity is the Hardened Scales deck. It didn't even get banned into Oblivion. It just didn't end up lining up well against the format. But you bring an old Affinity list to a tournament and you strap an Ink Moth Nexus with a Cranial Plating for lethal and you're still doing stuff if they don't have the right removal. Like, that's the, that's the name of the game. So... That's why I wanted to do an episode on linear decks. That's why I picked a day where I was going to be in the car a little bit longer to talk about linear decks. They're really good at what they do, which is something that feels broken. That's, that's what they all do. So the other advantage to be gained, you know, we talk about a financial budget. You only have to invest in them once. You get two or three of them, you're in a good spot. The other advantage to be gained is from a time perspective. Because each time you play them, you're going to get a little bit better with them. That skill doesn't go away. You definitely want to try to keep playing and hone that skill, make it sharper, make yourself better. But you don't necessarily, like, you don't have to put in the same level of testing and practice to, to come up with an optimal configuration of a linear deck <coughs> unless you're trying to create it from scratch. As compared to trying to come out with a list of Jun that's better against the field or come out with a list of Wurza that, that lines up better or come out with a list of... Uh, oh God, there's, there's tons of them, right? There's just tons of different ways to look at it. And at the end of the day, that's that's what we're here for. You don't have, like, your time is better served when you're building and playing linear decks, especially in older formats, because achieving mastery over your deck gives you the largest amount of win percentage you could ask for. 
and doing so with a deck that also saves you some time, equity, in testing because the games go fast. That's that's not nothing. Like value your value your skill, want to hone your your strengths as a magic player. Sure, that's great. Ever we should all want to do that. But value your time on planet Earth too. You know, if I can sit down on Arena tomorrow and play uh, mono white aggro and it line up pretty well against the fact that nobody's playing board wipes and it's obscenely linear because it's all the way in on you know trying really hard to uh, to get really wide attack if your opponent has the board wipe you just lose like a thousand percent of the time right well Sometimes I don't have it. And your games are over quick. If they do have it, your games are over pretty quick. And you can go ahead and either admit defeat or claim a quick uh, victory. Move on. You know, if, if my goal is to get four wins in a day on Arena, and I play four games of Mono White versus four games of, I don't know, is it Draw 2 or Team of Reclamation, I can get 12 games of Mono White in the amount of time it takes me to win three games with Team of Reclamation. That's the, the other non... It's, it's the other benefit of playing linear decks that is not an inconsequential one. You play them at tournaments. It's a reduced amount of mental fatigue. It's easier. You know, especially if you've repped the deck to the point where you've played it through a lot of scenarios. The mental shortcuts are there. You know, you're comfortable, you're confident, you get time to stop and go eat. Like, all of these are net benefits. So that's all I have for this week, everybody. I thank you again for listening. I know this one has run on a little long. I, I do like to ramble. Uh, but, you know, that's I love talking about magic. And when I have the opportunity to help other people... That is a deer on the side of the road. Uh, when I have the opportunity to help other people, and avoid pitfalls myself, as I, you know, avoided that deer on the side of the road just now, avoided getting my car destroyed in the middle of nowhere because I had to take an exit that I don't normally take. <laughs> you know. If I get to avoid pitfalls and then use the lesson I learn in helping avoid that pitfall to help someone else avoid that same pitfall, that's what I want to do. So, again, thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you want to reach out, you want to talk magic, you want to uh, suggest topics for future episodes, head over to Twitter. I'm at HomewardPathMTG. You can find me on Facebook. I am Adam Spain. You can join the Facebook group, the Homeward Pathfinders. It is open invite. Uh, just submit a request. Our admins will give you a once over and we'll see, you know, we'll, we'll probably give you a shot. If you turn out not to be a horrible person, you stay in. That's how this works. It's easy. Uh, and then if you love what I'm doing enough to help me keep doing it, Head over to patreon.com slash homewardpathmtg and consider becoming a patron of the show. Show's always going to be free, but if you like what you're doing enough to help me keep doing it, I will be glad to accept the help. I, you know, something I've learned in my adult life. Never, ever, ever turn down help if it's going to, if it's beneficial. 
you know, never be too proud to accept help that's, that's offered. Also, never be too proud to ask for help. If you don't know something or you need help with something, ask. Being macho is just going to end your life with an aneurysm. So, you know, dial down the Saiyan pride a little bit and just, let's, let's do it. And with that, that's all I got. Uh, I am still driving up the back roads and I'm basically in an area with no cell service. So I cannot even pull over and pull up Twitter to look at hashtag MTG dad jokes this week. And to the best of my knowledge, I maybe had one or two. So I'll just let them build up. Let's get some extra ones in for next week. Uh, again, it's my favorite segment to do every week when I get an opportunity to do it. Again, I'm kind of out in the middle of nowhere and just trying to get home. Uh, trying to find my path home. Huh? 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 Anyway. So that's all I got for this week, everybody. Again, thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. And until next time, be safe. Play magic, have fun, take care of yourselves. Esther, can you say bye, everybody? Bye, everybody. You heard it here, folks. Take it easy.